Well, good morning once again. Uh, give you a little chance if you want. We'll pop that QR code back up here if you want to get to message notes or didn't get a chance to get to any of the other things like our announcements and uh, things like that. But while, while that's up here, let me give you a quick update on some things, so, or one thing in particular. Many of you know that we have a recovery house uh, over at our St. Albans campus. It's actually on the property there. And at that house, we have three uh, men living there who are in recovery. And just wanted to give you a little update. Uh, one of the men, Sean, this week, he achieved six months of sobriety. So that's a great achievement, isn't it? And then another man, Mark, he recently hit his two-year mark of sobriety. So that's incredible. And then recently, we welcomed a new resident. His name is JW, and he's just been expressing how thankful he is to this house that, that will help in his recovery. So I, I just wanted to pause for a little moment, you know, and give you an update, but also just kind of say, unfortunately, you know, throughout church history, there's, there's been a bit of a stigma, you know, in recent years about people with addictions and things like that, and the church sometimes hasn't helped with that stigma. Uh, but I am so thankful to be a part of a church that loves people where they are and realizes that just because someone struggles with one thing doesn't mean that that's any worse than, than someone else's struggle. In fact, in a lot of ways, we could all say that we're, we're either in recovery or we're addicted. Uh, and it may not be a substance, but there's something that has control over us that we are allowing to have control in our lives. And so, we, you know, we, we all should be in recovery in some ways. But I would like to just pause for a moment and just pray for Sean and Mark and JW and also for Dennis. Dennis oversees our facility uh, ministry here, but also he oversees our recovery ministry. And so uh, I'd, I'd like to pause and just pray for them and then we'll jump into the message. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for the work that you are doing in the, in the lives of these men and we're so thankful to be able to celebrate with Sean his six months of sobriety and two years for Mark. And then just uh, we're, we're celebrating the fact that, that JW now has a place that's going to help him in his recovery. And God, we pray that these people, uh, these men, that they wouldn't just get better from, a, from an addiction. But the ultimate goal is that they would continue in their walk closer to you, Jesus. I thank you for Dennis and his work with, with our recovery ministry as well, and that you would just continue to bless these men as they, uh, as they pursue you and as you change their lives. Thank you for the power of the cross and the power of the resurrection, the power to raise, that power is so powerful that enough that, that it can raise us from the dead and it can certainly turn us from sin. So we thank you for... Uh, what you are doing and how you are working, and we give you praise and glory. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, since it's uh, Valentine's Day, I, I thought I would tell you an amazing story of how suave and confident I was when uh, I first started dating Sarah. And hopefully you can hear some sarcasm in that because I was a chicken. So, uh, <laughs> I, uh, I transferred to Kentucky Christian University to start my sophomore year of college. And during that first semester, I kept seeing this beautiful girl named Sarah walking around campus. And there were a few times that I got to meet her and talk to her, but our, our circles never really overlapped. But by second semester, uh, Sarah and I, we shared a mutual friend named Wendy. 
And um, being the brave, courageous guy that I was, I told Wendy that I was interested in Sarah. And, and so she helped me plot to uh, get us together. So we all kind of got together in a big group. And that was our first chance to really like interact with one another outside of uh, the campus setting. And so eventually I started talking more and more with Sarah and uh, doing my best to whittle that group away and, and get it down to just Sarah and me going out. And since Valentine's Day was coming up, I decided I was going to try and do something special for her. And, uh, and, and in that, at that day, that moment, I was going to ask her to officially be my girlfriend. So uh, my friend Rodney and I, we decided to team up. We borrowed the resident director, hall director's uh, apartment, and we made dinner. He invited his girlfriend, I invited Sarah, and we made dinner for them. And dinner consisted of heart-shaped peanut butter and jelly sandwiches <laughs> and macaroni and cheese. I am not a great cook, and I was a poor college student, but at least it was better than Raymond Noodles. Uh, and after, after dinner, we went to a, one of the college basketball games, and then we hung out in one of the lobbies, and eventually, I, I walked Sarah back to her dorm, and this was the moment I was waiting for. I was going to ask her to be my girlfriend. And so right as we got to her dorm, uh, she was about to go in, and I mustered all of my courage, and I said, wait. And then, the courageous part, I pulled out a letter because I was too scared that I was going to mess up what I would say. <laughs> and I read to her this note that I'd written about how I felt about her. And at the end of the note, I, I, I asked her to be my girlfriend. And she said, and I quote, I think we both know how we feel about each other. It's just never been verbalized. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> and uh, so I walked back to my dorm room and my roommate there, he was like, so how'd it go? Everything go all right? I was like, yeah, and I told him the story and then said what she had said when I asked her to be my girlfriend. He's like, so is she your girlfriend? I, said, I don't know, I think. <laughs> so true story, this is true. I ended up just calling her <laughs> and saying, so are you my girlfriend? <laughs> and she said, yes, this time, woo! So that was incredibly good news. That was great news. Well, today is Valentine's Day, and we're starting a series called Good News. You know, in a world where there's so much bad news, so much animosity and incivility and hatred and division, uh, even in the church, you know, we, we could all use a little bit of good news, couldn't we? So for the next few weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about this good news and how it transforms everything about our lives. The, the good news, as many of you know, is the definition of the word gospel. Gospel means good news. The gospel is the good news. And the good news is even better than Sarah saying yes to me, or whatever she said before yes. Right? It's better than that. And, and let's face it, uh, as, as, as great as that news was for me, and surprising, right, <laughs> that she would actually say yes, this good news that we're going to be talking about, the gospel, is the amazing story of the sinless life, sacrificial death, and powerful resurrection of the historically real person known as Jesus of Nazareth, or Jesus the Christ. Now many of us, we've heard this story, and we've believed this story. So, some of you have basically believed this for your entire life. Some of you have recently heard it. But hopefully, 
We will all come to believe it with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. The Apostle Paul would write this about the gospel in Romans 1.16. He said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. And, and, and by the way, when, when he's talking about first to the Jew, then to the Gentile, he's really just speaking chronologically. The gospel first was presented to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. So the basis, though, of this series is that the gospel, this good news, has the power to transform us. It has the power to transform us, every part of us, as it brings salvation to our lives. Now, today with being Valentine's Day, you might be wondering, well, what does this good news have to do with Valentine's Day? And the answer is, well, really nothing. <laughs> but today, today actually fits perfectly into our theme of good news because we say that Valentine's Day is all about love, and, and so is the gospel. This good news is all about love. It is rooted in love. You know, those of you who, who grew up in the church, maybe you remember a little chorus that was sung once in a while. We would actually sing this song in a round. Uh, we don't do that anymore because it's really, really cheesy. But uh, the chorus went, love, 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 love. The gospel in a word is love. Love your neighbor as your brother. Love, love, love. Anyone remember that little chorus? You know, a few of us. All right, the gospel in a word it says, is love. And of course, this song has its biblical basis in Scripture, in the Gospels. Jesus would say in John 13, he said, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, this, Jesus said that this is a new command. So loving one another was not a new command in the sense that the Old Testament did speak about loving one another. But what was new about it is that this, this command now had a flesh and blood example to follow. It wasn't vague anymore. You didn't have to look up the definition. All you had to do was look at Jesus. He said, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. So the disciples were able to have a model, a model of what love really looked like, not some distorted version of love. And of course, this statement that he made about loving one another is, I have loved you, love one another. This statement followed when Jesus had just washed the disciples' feet, including Judas, and Jesus knew he would betray him. And then it preceded, of course, Jesus' full expression of his love when he was crucified. So as, as this series called Good News starts on Valentine's Day, let's talk about how love, which really is the gospel in, in, in a single word, how it transforms our lives. And again, the, the gospel has the power to transform us. This good news should be transforming our lives, our marriages, our churches, our communities. And, and that's where we're going with this series. It should permeate into everything about us, what we say, what we think, what we do. And if it's not, then either we really haven't heard the gospel or we really don't believe it. Because how you live is what you believe, right? How you live is what you believe. Jesus said in Matthew 5, that you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And then in verse 46, he would say, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? In other words, 
even the tax collectors, even, even the people who, who in that society you would think are the worst people, they love people who are easy to love. They love people who love them back. But we're to be different than that. So how we treat one another, especially how we treat those with whom we disagree, it speaks volumes about how our lives have been changed by the gospel. Now, I have to admit that this sermon is, is actually a little bit difficult for me to preach right now. Um, you know, there are times where I know we're going to be preaching about something, or preaching about a topic, and then, of course, it, it's so often that this happens, there's, there's something that will test me in that area leading up to the sermon that I'm about to preach. Sarah and I, we, we jokingly like dread when we're going to preach, when I'm supposed to preach about marriage, because we're like, we just know leading up to a marriage series or a marriage message, we're, we're going to be tested in some way or we're going to have a big argument or blow up, you know, right before and then I'm going to have to preach about marriage. And, and so we just know that it just seems like there's always this test leading up to a sermon or a sermon series. Well, I had already written this sermon. I had already written, you know, this, this statement, how we treat one another, especially how we treat those with whom we disagree. It speaks volumes about how our lives have been changed by the gospel and wouldn't you know it. Friday evening, there was an instance where I was tested in this area. And I failed bad. I, I crash landed. My intent was out of love. It was out of concern for what was best for another person. But my tone, <laughs> it was not very loving. When, when this person became very, became very rude, I, I spoke with anger. I attacked back with my words. And I felt horrible about it. I even told Sarah that night, I said, I, I don't know if I can get up here on Sunday and preach with any bit of integrity. And so I'm praying that God's word is going to do the talking today and not my poor example. But, you know, this, this past year, I've, <clears throat> I've been frustrated with Christians. I've been frustrated as I've witnessed some pretty awful comments on social media from people who would claim that the gospel has changed them and so when things didn't go their way or someone would disagree with them uh, or, they, or, or they disagree with their take on politics or culture or, or even when some people were trying to make a truly biblical stand but someone would question them, I've witnessed the opposite of a gospel response, the opposite of love and it's frustrated me and then here I am, I'm, I did the same thing, not on social media but to a person's face. And so this command that Jesus gives us, I readily admit, is not an easy command. Don't, don't get me wrong, the, the good news is it's great news. It's a great command, but it is hard to live out, isn't it? So the good news of how we have been forgiven of so much and how we are loved even when we're unfaithful, that's what's going to help us to live out this command. You see, really living under the power of the gospel is about recognizing the incredible, life-changing, unconditional love of God for us. And how those of us who, who live with that understanding then are called to live a life of love. When we understand that, it, it makes it easier. It's not, it's not easy, but it's, it's a little easier. And the New Testament speaks so clearly and persuasively about this. There, there are so many verses that we could look at. We're, look at. We're not going to look at all of them today, but just a few. Paul, Paul would tell Timothy that the goal of his teaching was love. He said in 1 Timothy 1.5 that the goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. He would tell the Colossian believers that his hope for them, his goal for them, 
was that they would may be encouraged in heart and united in love. He told the believers in Rome to let no debt remain, out, remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. If you want to fulfill the law, what does he say? You love one another. The apostle Peter made this appeal in 1 Peter 1.22. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, Love one another deeply from the heart. And then we, we don't have time to go into all of the verses that the Apostle John uh, talks about in his letters on this subject. But basically, he echoes the words of Jesus. For instance, in 1 John 3.11, he wrote, For this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Needless to say, the New Testament, and, and really the entire Bible, has a lot to say about love. In fact, many people refer to Scripture as a love letter from God. So the good news really is a love story. But if the good news is only a story about how God loves us, then it's, it's actually an incomplete story. Because the good news story includes then how the love of God transforms us and how we love others. That's what makes the story more complete. If you've been to, to very many weddings, you probably know that 1 Corinthians 13 is, is like the chapter on love, right? In fact, we call it the love chapter of the Bible. The Apostle Paul would lead into this chapter by ending verse 12, or chapter 12 saying, and yet I will show you the most excellent way. So if you have your Bible or a Bible app, we're going we're gonna to stay in 1 Corinthians 13 the rest of the time if you want to open up to that. And we're going to work our way down this chapter to see this most excellent way to see how this good news impacts how we love. And the very first paragraph of 1 Corinthians 13 makes it clear that love is not optional. It's not optional. It is essential. So let's look at the first three verses of 1 Corinthians 13. Paul writes, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. So you could be the smartest, wisest, wealthiest, most attractive, strongest, most powerful, most athletic, most generous, most faithful, coolest person in the world. But if you're vindictive, mean-spirited, if you don't love, you're just making a bunch of noise and accomplishing nothing. Rick Warren sums up these three verses when he writes this. He says, God is saying, I can have the eloquence of an orator, I can have the knowledge of a genius. I can have the faith of a miracle worker. I can have the generosity of a philanthropist. And I can have the dedication of a martyr. But if I don't have love, it doesn't count. Did you catch that? We can be the best of the best of the best at what we do. But if we don't have love, it just doesn't matter. You see, the good news transforms the way we love others. I love how the message translation of the Bible words this passage. A man named Eugene Peterson kind of rewrote scripture in a, in a, in a kind of a common vernacular. He said this, he said, If I speak with human eloquence 
an angelic ecstasy, but don't love, I'm nothing but the creaking of a rusty gate. If I speak God's word with power, revealing all his mysteries and making everything plain as day, and if I have faith that says to a mountain, jump, and it jumps, but I don't love, I'm nothing. If I give everything I own to the poor and even go to the stake to be burned as a martyr, but I don't love, I've gotten nowhere. So no matter what I say, what I believe, and what I do, I'm bankrupt without love. I love that word picture. I am bankrupt without love. What a powerful statement. All the money and power and intellect in the world amounts to a big fat zero without love. The next paragraph of this chapter then identifies the attributes of love. And it makes it clear that love is not primarily emotional, but it is intentional. It's not just a bunch of emotions. It is intentional. You know, I think over the years, we've kind of been programmed to think of love as this involuntary feeling of infatuation. Like it's, it's some uncontrollable, spontaneous emotion that sweeps us off of our feet. We'll even say, I, I, I fell in love. Like it just accidentally happened. Like there's a big hole that says love and we just fell into that hole, right? There's love, I, I fell into it, right? And you know, popular songs have contributed to this idea. Songs like, I can't help falling in love with you, right? And really about 99% of all love songs deal with this subject really on an emotional level. But it's so much more than that. Listen to the section of 1 Corinthians 13. And again, I, I realize you've probably heard this section a whole lot. Maybe you've heard it a lot at weddings. But I, I would like for you to try and listen to it with some fresh ears and hearts today. And notice how many of these virtues that, that Paul lists, they have nothing to do, absolutely nothing to do with emotion, but everything to do with intentional action. They're words of sacrifice. So here's what he writes starting in verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking it is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Now sometime this week, really, I'd, I'd love for you to do this today. I'd love for you to go back to this section and read it again. And then... Instead of saying love, read it another time, but put your name in where you see love. So for me, it would be, Steve is patient. Steve is kind. Steve does not envy. He does not boast. He is not proud. Steve does not dishonor others. He's not self-seeking. He's not easily angered. He keeps no record of wrongs. Steve does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Steve always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres, Steve never fails. I got to tell you, reading it like that makes me sick because I know I'm speaking lies when I say that. I'm, I'm not where I should be. I'm not there. I have a long way to go. But then one more assignment with this passage. Then go back and replace the word love with Jesus. And there is no lie in that statement. Jesus is patient. 
Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy. He does not boast. He is not proud. You know, I was where I'd preached first service and had been going through this passage throughout the week. During communion, I was sitting over there thinking as I prayed how Jesus is not proud. The humility it took for him to go to the cross when he could have said, do you know who I am? Right? And he could have walked away. He could have decimated everyone and everything. Jesus is not proud. Jesus does not dishonor others. He is not self-seeking. He is not easily angered. He keeps no record of wrongs. Thank God he doesn't. Jesus does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Jesus never fails. Isn't that powerful to read it like that? Jesus is the one then who helps us live a life of love. Because we can't do it on our own. His, his love is an unconditional love. And many of you know the Greek language has a word for unconditional love. It's the word agape. It's that kind of love that never fails. Because emotions, they're going to fluctuate. Emotions fade and fall. But this love does not fail because it is a lifelong, unconditional commitment of seeking others' well-being more than self. Once again, I love how Eugene Peterson puts it in the message translation. He says this, Love never gives up. Love cares for, more for others than for self. Love doesn't want what it doesn't have. Love doesn't strut, doesn't have a swelled head, doesn't force itself on others, isn't always me first, doesn't fly off the handle, doesn't keep score of the sins of others, doesn't revel when others grovel, takes pleasure in the flowering of truth, puts up with anything, trusts God always, always looks for the best, never looks back, but keeps going to the end. Love never dies. And as you read this, can you just hear the words of sacrifice? Right? I think the one word that best describes love when you read this is the word unselfish. And this is how the gospel, the good news, transforms your, your thinking and transforms your life because you stop thinking so much about your own life. You take the focus off self. And when you do that, you love others and fulfill the law. Well, the final paragraph of 1 Corinthians 13 makes it clear that love is not temporal. It's not temporary. It's eternal. Here's what we read. Paul writes, But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now, we, we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we will see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Isn't that great? Even as I am fully known. So prophecies, they'll cease. Political leaders and powerful kingdoms will rise and fall just as they've done all throughout history. What we think is important in this world will pass away. 
What, what we try to hold on to in this life will one day fade away. And our earthly vision that we have right now, it's, it's clouded. We only see in part. That's why if we're followers of Christ, we are being transformed by the good news and we walk by faith, not by sight. We begin to see things with an eternal perspective. A man named E.V. Hill was a dynamic African-American preacher in the inner cities of, of Los Angeles. And during the Watts riots in the 1960s, he had this ability to be able to talk straight to both sides, to really all sides. But as a result of this, people didn't really like it, and his life was threatened on, on many occasions. One day, he received, uh, received a credible report that anarchists were plotting to bomb his car. The next morning, when Pastor Hill awakened, his wife was not at his side. And so he called out for her, but she didn't respond. And he looked out his window and he noticed that his car was gone and he started to get really concerned for his wife. A few minutes later, she drove back in the driveway and he went out there and he demanded, he said, woman, what are you doing? And she said, well, I just got to thinking, this community needs you more than it needs me. And if they were going to rig that car to be bombed, I wanted to be in it and not you in it. And that's when E.V. Hill humbly said, I always knew my wife loved me, but that day I understood what love is all about. Jesus said, love one another, but he said, as I have loved you, we have a model in him. Paul concluded, concludes this chapter, 1 Corinthians 13, saying, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So the good news transforms the way we live. It transforms the way we love others. So as we've said, love is not an option. If you are a Christian, you don't get to pick and choose when or who you will love and, and when you won't. It's essential. And love is not a feeling. If you're a Christian, love doesn't just come and go according to how you feel. It is unconditional and it is intentional action. And love is not temporal. It is not, it's not temporary. It is unconditional. It goes the distance. It is eternal. Jesus said in, in John 13, 35, by this, every, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have the right political convictions, right? If you know all the right answers, then people will know you're my disciples, right? By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have a PhD in theology and can understand the Greek language so you can interpret the Bible better. No. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. If we are genuine followers of Jesus Christ, if our lives are being transformed by the good news of Jesus, yes, we're going to mess this up. But it's time for us then to grow up and act like it. The gospel in a word is love. And this is that gospel love. Maybe you've heard this before. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That's love. That is good news. 
And that, that, that love, that good news has the power to transform us here on earth and raise us to a transformed life in heaven. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there is <laughs> there's so much bad news in this world. And it's easy to look, uh, look at these things and hear these things on the news and get so discouraged. But God, there is a news that, that is far more important than, than even the wars going on in our world, the division in our country, the bad news that we hear. There is news that surpasses that all and it is so good. It is the good news of Jesus Christ. That God, you took on flesh and blood and came into this world, lived a sinless life, showed us what it was like to live and to love, and then willingly, you had the power to stop it, but you willingly went to the cross and paid the price that was due for our sins. You paid the price that none of us could pay for ourselves. You made the sacrifice because we were never a worthy sacrifice. We were never good enough. We were never righteous enough. We needed a savior, sinless, perfect. But the story gets even better. Not only did you willingly go to the cross and die for our sins, but on that third day, raised to life. That resurrection power is strong enough to raise us from the dead to eternal life. And it's strong enough to raise us from addiction, raise us from our sin. It is strong enough to work in us and change our lives completely. Change how we live, how we talk, how we act. It changes the decisions that we make. It changes how we treat others. It even changes how we treat those who disagree with us. So God, I, I thank you for this good news and I pray that this good news would get into us, that we would understand how much you loved us and the extent to which you went to demonstrate that love for us. And it would come out in the way that we love others, even when they disagree with us. So God, I pray that our lives would be marked by love. I pray that people would know that we are your disciples by our love. Forgive us when we have communicated a different message than that. It would help us to be like Jesus. As he loved, may we love. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. And so this good news, this gospel, always, always, always demands a response. There is a response that we have to make to this news about what Jesus has done for us. And that initial biblical response is to believe. To believe this good news. Believe Jesus. To, to trust in his power to save us. To confess him as Lord. 
and to turn from our sin. The word is repent. Turn from the life we've been living, the sin we've been heading towards and turn away from that and turn to Jesus and to be baptized. What a a beautiful picture that is, right? Of the, the death and burial of Jesus and his resurrection and how we unite with him in baptism to have a death and a burial of our old life but also the hope of a resurrected life, a new life in him. And so that's the initial response to the gospel. If you've never done that, we invite you to make that decision today. In the first service, we have someone who's, who's just about ready to make that decision. And we're so excited for her. But there's also that ongoing decision to let this good news change our lives each and every day. To continually Repent day in and day out. Yes, there's an initial repentance. But there's a daily repenting of, of our selfishness and our sinful ways, of our pride and the turning back to Jesus. And maybe today, even where you're sitting, you need to make that decision to respond in that way. Or maybe you just need some prayer today. And so I'm going to be up here to your right as we sing this last song. If there is a response that you need to make to the gospel, I'd love to help you walk through that response. We stand and sing with us.